10 years ago, we thought playing chess is intelligent. And so we were like, if a computer can play chess, whatever system enables that is an artificially intelligent system. Today, we're like, you know, you need to be able to have a coherent conversation. Tomorrow, we might be like, oh, yeah, you need to be able to run a whole business. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today are Ben Coburn and Tanmay Chopra. They're the co-founders of Common Ground. They're working in the intersection of progressive politics and artificial intelligence, applying AI to voter contact, among other things. They met working at the recently acquired search engine Neva. Tanmay brings the machine learning and related skills, while Ben's experience is in communications at a high level in both politics and for technology companies. If you're interested in what a combo like that is building for politics, you should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Ben and Tanmay at Common Ground. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Ben and Tanmay, I wonder if I can talk you each into giving me a quick biography. How about Ben? Great. Thank you, Nathaniel. It's a pleasure to be on, on the show and appreciate the conversation. So a little bit on my background. So I have spent about uh, nearly two decades kind of at the intersection of policy, politics, and frankly, now technology. The first decade uh, I had the privilege of uh, working in policy and government, mainly for then Senator Clinton, presidential candidate Clinton, and Secretary of State Clinton in all three of those aspects. And I served in her Senate office uh, as a press secretary. I served on her first presidential campaign uh, as a press secretary in six different states during the primary. And then I came on at the State Department as a communications and policy advisor in the uh, office for basically international climate negotiations. And then I also uh, had the privilege of supporting the environment and climate policy program during her 2016 race. And then the last decade I spent in technology and I was out in the Bay Area, I worked for Apple. I then uh, moved on to a startup called Color Health which is a health population, health technology startup. And the last two years, and most relevant to, I think, our conversation today, I worked uh, at a company called Neva, which was an AI-powered search engine uh, that was recently acquired by Snowflake for a lot of the AI work that we were doing with large language models and the ability to take a large body of content, the entire internet, and use AI to bring 
coherent answers to search queries. And that's actually where, where I met my colleague, Tanmay. Tanmay, before I ask you this exactly the same question, I want to just ask a few more follow-ups of Ben, because in his telling, he starts working for Hillary Clinton as senator without any prehistory of that. That's not your, your average first job. Tell me a little bit about like the family you grew up with the education you had and what was your path to that? I grew up outside of New York City in Westchester County. I grew up in a very progressive-minded values home. I was very fortunate that a lot of issues that I was drawn to, especially in democratic politics, were talked about at the kitchen table. My father was is a prosthodontist and my mom's an entrepreneur and started a small business actually in her early 60s, a small food company. For school, I went to Emory University where I studied history and political science. And at the end of school, kind of in my senior year, I didn't quite know what I was going to do after graduation. And halfway through, I was connected with Senator Clinton's Westchester County representative. Her name's Jerry Shapiro. She's actually very well known in New York State and is wonderful. And uh, we had a conversation and she said, you know, if you can do it, you should come and be an intern potentially in, in the Senate office in D.C. after you graduate. And uh, I was in the posi fortunate position where I was able to do that. And I graduated Emory and I started right away in the Senate office and, as an intern. And I went from being an intern to uh, what I would consider the most important job of my career. I became the clips person for Senator Clinton. And for nearly two years, I woke up between three and four o'clock in the morning, seven days a week. And I compiled what ended up being a 150 to 200 page document of the day's most important news clips and articles from international, national news, New York State, what we thought the senator should know. And she takes those very seriously. And I say it was the most important job I've ever had. I still do the clips today to any organization that I'm in. I've always done the clips, but it put me on a path to, I think, understanding current events politics and what is going on more than I could have ever asked for in, in a crash course. And kind of from doing the clips, I went from that to being a on the record press secretary in Nevada in the 2007 presidential primary uh, and then moved up from there. It's kind of a common story in politics, actually. I've heard something similar with different details, different personnel from so many people, but the permeability of the ranks of politics where if you do a good job, you can rise up and, and work in doing important things and learning like how the system works from a young age. I see it over and over. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, in fact, when I talk to anyone, young person on either side of the political aisle, when they ask me, you know, what would be your advice? My first thing is join a presidential campaign. If you can't join a presidential campaign, join, join a Senate campaign. And I say that because there is no place Startups come very close. This is why I love startups too, where at such a young age, you can be given so much responsibility. If you do well with that responsibility, you get promoted and given more responsibility almost immediately and you see your impact very clearly. And with the clips, the thing I love the most is not only did she voraciously read them and go through them, she marks them all up with notes, or she did. Uh, to the aides that were responsible for those, whatever issue. And then I would 
take them back to the aid and I would actually see how an idea was then turned into some sort of action. And you learn that system and that stays with you forever. The contrast between what you know intimately is a a politician willing to read and learn and the person who beat her in 2016 who notoriously cannot read a document that's longer than one page long and needs like a crayon colored picture to understand anything. Uh, Sigh. You know, I was again in the Senate office just having through osmosis to witness what I think great government service can be. You can disagree with someone's politics. And I, I think that that is healthy. But when you are around someone who literally wakes up every day and their entire being is to try to better lives of others, and in our case, New York State residents on both sides of the aisle, but you watched it every day and it was done through deep in policy and reading and educating and then finding ways to uh, have an impact. I only wish the rest of the country had an opportunity to have that at, at the national scale, but I think many people did see it, certainly as she was Secretary of State. And you can't play the what if, but uh, I certainly had a chance to see it uh, on a number of levels and feel very fortunate for that. I'm going to return to you, but I'm going to pick up with Tan May a little bit, who has a slightly different background, which is highly complimentary to yours in what you're trying to do right now. Tan May, give me your story. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely slightly different and, and probably a lot less exciting. I've been doing machine learning for, for kind of the entirety of my adult life. Got into the space about six years ago, right after the, the you know seminal, what we call a Transformers paper, Attention is All You Need, came out. And we saw these huge gains in, in what we could do with AI, what we could do with large models of all sorts, um, and have spent sort of the last six years just playing around with these technologies, getting them into production, and actually spent the last couple of years working at first at TikTok on their trust and safety machine learning team. So we built algorithms to keep the platform safe and essentially to prevent harm off the platform to, to our users, and then hopped over to Neva, where I met Ben, and worked deeply on the large language model space, specifically on retrieval augmented generation, both through prompting and fine tuning of, of language models. My experience with, with sort of what we used to call earlier dialogue systems and now folks call large language models in some sense or instruction tuned large language models really stretches further beyond that. It was, a, it was actually a big part of my graduate research. I spent quite a bit of time in grad school working on uh, dialogue systems and specifically their impacts on, on users. So that's kind of my background. I went to school at, at Columbia, got my undergrad and, and grad degrees there and, and grew up in India before that. Can you expand just a little bit on what it was like growing up, how you land over here and what attracted you to meet machine learning in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. What's really exciting about growing up in India is uh, you get exposed to not only experiencing, but actually building these technologies really, really early. This world of STEM is very ingrained into education at a very, very early stage. Uh, so I actually started coding when I was in the fourth or fifth grade, uh, spent a whole summer learning how to, to code up C and C++, uh, which were kind of the, the hot languages at that point in time. What I really saw was being exposed to these technologies early from the perspective of someone building them really helps you understand and use them a lot better. 
but it also helps you sort of not feel uncomfortable or not feel scared. And we're seeing this now, you know, as these new technologies are proliferating uh, society, folks that haven't been exposed to sort of the building side of these technologies are, are tending to have a little bit more fear and skepticism. So that's kind of been a good advantage of, of being exposed to them earlier as a, as a function of, of growing up in India. I ended up coming here for, for undergrad and actually chanced on machine learning completely randomly. My first internship, end of my freshman year in college, I went back to Bangalore to do this internship at a decision sciences firm um, and, and got handed a machine learning project that at that point in time, nobody wanted. Really, that's how it ended up in my hands was none of the senior engineers had the capacity or the time to work on it. So they said, you know, who has nothing to lose? Uh, this kid that's just doing his first internship. And I fell in love with it mostly because of the scale of impact. I think software can do really incredible things, uh, but there's things that software can't do. And that's when the buck gets passed to machine learning. And that's what excited me about it. This was kind of where the buck stopped in terms of technology. This was the kind of stuff that could learn by itself, expand by itself in, in some sense. One of the threads that I've tried to cover in this podcast has been the intersection of progressive politics with tech and entrepreneurship. And so it's, it's actually fairly rare that I talk to founders who have started a, a team with both a strength in politics and a strength in technology that you two seem to bring. It is very hard to enter the political tech space without really understanding the progressive ecosystem, the world of political tech as it already exists. And I'm sure there's learning going on there because it's kind of an amorphous thing, but it's also extremely helpful to have the tech chops, especially in the area where a founder or, you know, someone in the initial team can do the work, not just hire, uh, another organization and do it for them and where you kind of lose control of your IP or don't really know it. So it's just kind of exciting to me to have both of you, but I want to also explore kind of what you're, what you're tackling with that before I get there. Um, Ben, I, I want you to talk a little about more about Neva because it seems to be pretty crucial in introducing you to each other. And also because when you talked about it, both of you, I still came up a little short of a full understanding of what was going on there and what's happened with the buyout. Expand on that a bit and maybe you take a swing at it too, Tommy. Absolutely. And Tommy can certainly uh, correct any of my mistakes and, and add in any of the tech nuances that I, I might not have at hand. Neva was an AI-powered search engine, but the way it started, um, it was founded by Sridhar Ramaswamy. Sridhar Ramaswamy ran all of Google's ads business for five years and was at Google for more than 15 in a variety of, of capacities. At the time he left, that was nearly $120 billion a year business for Google and obviously the most lucrative. His co-founder at the time when they started Neva one of the concepts behind it was if you look at Google search, it is in some ways caught between a rock and a hard place of serving end users and serving advertisers. And those don't always, rarely, actually align. And there are misaligned incentives there. And could you end up building a search engine where the only thing you're serving is the end user? And to do that, 
could you remove the advertising entirely and build a search engine from scratch that does that? Uh, it would be a subscription model or a freemium model. And that's what they set out to do. Uh, and early on, uh, they actually kind of used Bing as the background, you know, under the hood. Uh, but they realized pretty quickly, if you're going to make a real stab at uh, taking on big tech in search or having a real impact, you need to own your own tech stack that will enable you to build lots of end user functions that are going to be much better than the traditional search engines. And so folks like Tanmay and the rest of the engineering team, which were some of the folks who even built Google search from the beginning, one of the most talented teams I've been around, ended up being one of the few companies that exists that built its own search stack and was able to serve through that. And that is a very difficult thing to do. It sounds pretty simple. Make a copy of the internet. Uh, put it in some sort of filing cabinet. And then the moment someone says any kind of question before blinking an eye, provide a list of 10 results that are the most useful things that the world has ever seen that provides an answer. That's all the search engine really is. And they were able to do that. Now, about a year before it was acquired by Snowflake, Tom May can really jump in here. The world of kind of big, big infrastructure and AI and LLMs and search engines, it's not a huge universe of, of really top engineers. And seeing when you're in that space, seeing how the advances in large language models will at some point impact a search engine and our ability to ask a question and get coherent answers rather than just links, it was not too hard of a jump to make. And so I give a lot of credit to Sridhar and Vivek, uh, co-founder or the founders, where we started investing in AI and large language models and how that can apply into our systems. And so when ChatGPT went live in November of 2022 and took the world by storm with that explosive growth that no one had really ever played with or seen, within a month, we were actually the first search engine to put out an AI-powered version where, again, you type in a question and instead of getting 10 blue links, you got an answer and that answer was actually cited two sources. And that, at the time, fixed two big things even ChatGPT didn't have. Number one, it didn't come with sources. And number two, the model was built on information only up through 2021. Ours was the current universe of search, which is the current internet. When Snowflake, I can give you a little background here and the co-founders wrote about this quite a bit, but even though we had this, it wasn't um, hard to imagine that pretty soon Bing and Google through Bard were going to fight each other in, in a major way to own the consumer search with AI. Uh, and as good as our, our product was, and I, I think it was uh, on its own, extremely good, it was very, very hard to compete. It's also very hard to compete just generally when there are some roadblocks of getting your, your name out there and being able to get users to try you. But when we figured that out, as that door was maybe closing on the consumer side, the enterprise market was opening up. There were a lot of folks who knew that they needed an AI strategy. They needed AI built in natively. And we had a lot of folks knocking on our door, seeing if we could help them. And instead of a partnership, it ended up being an acquisition with Snowflake. But it was it was quite a journey. And I'd love for Taname to talk a little maybe about kind of how that really came to be on the AI side. Hold that for just one question and then, and then we'll go to that. So- could you just explain what your role was, Ben, in this? And then what is Snowflake for people who don't know? 
So my role at Nevo is I ran communications and public policy for two years there. So that's all external, internal comms. And the public policy side, we we dealt with a lot of regulatory issues, including antitrust and competition issues, as you can imagine. So there was a presence in D.C. and also uh, in the European Union. And uh, obviously, the comms speaks for itself. Tanmay, you should explain exactly what Snowflake does, data lakes and data warehouse and what it provides as a company. Go for it, Tanmay. Tell me about Neva and, and Snowflake and what you were up to. Yeah, absolutely. So I was a machine learning engineer on our, on our team. We were a small but hopefully powerful team. And essentially what we were doing on the AI side was, was twofold. Uh, the first was what we called retrieval augmented generation, right? So what we were trying to say is external sources of information are going to be really key to this world of LLMs. And essentially, we don't just want to generate text from a model or from a model's memory, which is kind of the experience you have when you use ChatGPT or, or, or Claude with Anthropic. But we really want to merge the capability that the models have of being fluent with real-time information. And so we essentially came up with this product, which we called Exactly One Answer. And what that essentially did, just like Ben mentioned, was uh, we took context from the top N links and we essentially given the query that we got from a user, and with that context from the top links, uh, would try to answer the question directly. And the idea here was really to minimize the friction that exists in search today, which is the human having to click on each link, read all the information, go back, click on the second link, read all the information, right? Uh, there's a lot of noise amongst that little signal that you have scattered across all those pages. And we really wanted to make that experience a lot more smooth for the users. So this was one component of it. I spent some time working on this. And the other component was uh, what we like to think of as trying to make search more proactive than reactive. What's really exciting about you know, being able to index the web, especially if you have users where, whom you're closer to than, than sort of a search engine that's thinking of the users as a product, right? Given that our best interests uh, aligned with the user's best interests, we were a lot closer to our users in terms of what they cared about, uh, what sources they trusted, um, and essentially, we were able to lean into that to try and give them a better idea of what in the world is happening that could be exciting to them. And that's really what I mean by sort of making search more proactive than reactive um, is because we sat on the side of the customer versus sitting on the side of an advertiser. We could really be that sort of assistant on their shoulder saying, hey, here's some exciting things uh, that are happening in the world that are really pertinent to you. And so I also spent a lot of time building out um, really the cold start recommendation system uh, for us to be able to do this. So those are the, the two chunks of things that I spent quite a bit of time on. And Snowflake, explain Snowflake for somebody who doesn't know what that is as an acquirer. What's tech there and what's the fit? And also, why are you guys not at Snowflake? Absolutely. In terms of what Snowflake is and, and kind of what it does, a really good way to think about it is it's an organizational layer on top of all of your data. I'm sure someone at Snowflake can probably do a much better uh, job of explaining this, but the way I think about it is every company has these loads and loads of both structured and unstructured data, and you really need somewhere to put it and, and organize it and orchestrate on top of it. And that's really a good way to think about what Snowflake is. They sort of have two core parts of their business, and, and one of them is compute, which is essentially, can you run queries over your data to retrieve information that you want? And the other is storage, which is just sort of having that data put in a place that's secure, that's easy to access and always has uptime. And so that's really what they do. And the synergy there emerges to the front really quickly when you start thinking about that, uh, because essentially 
for them to be able to add AI capabilities right on top of these things is a huge unlock for the users of Snowflake. A really good way to think about it is like, it's a very natural extension to say, if you have all my data, can I search over it? What we did as a business was really search over unstructured data. And so the same capabilities that apply to the World Wide Web also apply to sort of the swaths of data that companies are holding in unstructured data specifically that, that companies are holding in their warehouses. That's really where there was a lot of synergy. If you think about it, the data that's stored by each company in their warehouse is a reflection of the data that exists on the World Wide Web. There's structured components, there's unstructured components. You want to search on it, you want to process over it. And so there's a lot of synergy in terms of the, the exact technologies. I recently read a reasonably lengthy account of chat GPT and how it works. Finding the next most probable word, or in their case, maybe slightly less most probable word, and the notion of how that process translates into something like intelligence, which is a leap that I'm yet to fully grasp, but I have, have played a lot with it and I see the results. I kind of understand at this point, some of the strengths and weaknesses, but for, for the lay person, Tanmay, can you put a finger on where we are in the development of artificial intelligence and what kind of intelligence is this and how different is it than human intelligence? I mean, it's, this, it's almost philosophical questions, but there is some uncanny things that I think we're learning about people and how we think as we explore ways to make computers think like people over these digital data sets. But just talk about that a little bit. And I'm sure I'll learn something and maybe other people will as well. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say we're in the very, very early stages. It feels like we're 90% of the way there, but very quickly we're going to realize we're not even 10% of the way there. And a lot of folks on the research side are really seeing this come to the forefront already. One of the big challenges that you realize when you start working with large language models is they actually don't do temporal reasoning very well. And we spent a lot of time at, at Neva trying to crack this problem. If you start trying to order dates, language models don't understand how that concept works. And so essentially, a good way to think about ChatGPT is to think about what came just before that. And that would be GPT-3. So every large language model at its root um, is trained to predict the next most likely word. You're absolutely right about that. And that's really what GPT-2 and GPT-3 were. Within AI, though, especially within the space of language models, we have what we call discriminative language models and then generative language models, right? Uh, a discriminative model is essentially something that is outputting some value that's discrete. So a good way to think about it is like a yes or no, right? If I gave you a text, and this could be a question, it could be a statement, it could be, you know, this is a podcast, and it would only spit out a value between zero and one, and you can assume that one is a yes and zero is a no. But it's always going to be probabilistic, right? It's never going to guarantee spit out one. Even if it thinks it's a one, it'll spit out like 0 0.99999. And so these are just a couple of the fundamentals that you should keep in mind as you think about these things. But really what ChatGPT is, is what we call instruction-tuned GPT-3 or 3.5. And what that essentially means is they went through a whole cycle of this next word modeling, right? They took huge swaths of text. And they started training the model on how to predict the next word over that piece of text and minimize the difference between what the model predicted and what the actual next word was, 
what you realize really quickly when you start thinking about this is so much of human knowledge is baked into text. That's how these models are creating a representation of the world. Folks like to call it emergent. It's really that like these words are our way of both storing and processing knowledge. And so anything that's trained to predict the next word is going to start learning some representation of human knowledge. And then once you're there, right, once you're at this place where you've sort of done a lot of next word modeling, you then go on to say, we want to start baking it with human preferences, right? Even amongst all the text that we have, some is better. And that's really hard to encode in a model. When you're training a model on a bunch of text that you've never read, it's really hard to tell it what's better or worse. And so we come to the second step, which is really the big unlock with ChatGPT, because you know GPT-2 had been around for a long time and it didn't create any of the waves, so it three. What instruction tuning does is it basically helps the model understand between two outputs, what's a better output, right? Uh, so you could ask me this question and I'll try and generate an answer. And you could ask Ben this question and he'd try and generate an answer. And then essentially what a human did in that process was say, okay, Ben's answer is better than Tanmay's. And so the model is now learning that between two potential generations of text, what's a better one? And that's really what I think resonated with people when they flipped open that UI of ChatGPT, right? Is that text was not, no longer just getting generated. It was getting generated in a coherent manner that appealed to them. So that's kind of what's going on under the hood. And I'm going to pause there for a second so you can jump in with, with follow-ups if there's any. Well, another area where AI has been demonstrated is in some of the AI-generated graphics, where you could say generate a building with these characteristics or build art on after this prompt is where does that fit in compared to a language model and what's going on there? Yeah, absolutely. So the way that's trained is actually really, really exciting, uh, right? There's a lot of images out there in the world that have a caption along with the image. And so basically what we do there is we start from noise uh, right. So you'll start from what we basically like to think is absolute randomness of an image. So think like a bunch of pixels that make no sense. And then what we do is we condition on this text that was the caption of the original image, the output that is the original image, if that, that kind of makes sense. And I'll, I'll go deeper into this. Essentially, the idea is given a bunch of noise and this text, you should generate the image that was associated with that text. That's the objective function of the model. So that's what the model is learning to optimize over time. What's really interesting is in the machine learning world, it really doesn't matter if you're using an image, text, or audio, right? Essentially, what you do is you convert everything into a list of numbers. And the way you do that is called embedding generation, right? It doesn't matter if it's an image. In the case of an image, you might start off with the RGB values of each pixel. In terms of text, what we do is we basically randomly assign every word a number, and that becomes our embedding. In audio, we might use like a frequency or something of that sort. Um, so you can really take any human concept, and as long as you have a way to convert that concept into a list of numbers, you can do machine learning on it. That's what's really, really exciting, and a lot of these concepts are not new. This whole process of embedding generation has been around since way before even the 60s. So that's really what's uh, exciting is like we've found these unlocks where people are starting to find this appealing, but a lot of the math is very old. I think that there's a ton of curiosity out there about this. Certainly I have it. And it's nice to talk to somebody who 
seems to understand it. One of the things that's come to me a little bit about this is that there's some involvement of neural networks in this. And so there's a big difference between, at least as I understand it, between machine learning and actually employing a neural network, which is kind of a, in a certain way, a digital facsimile of, of a brain of how we do computation. But is that right? How do neural networks fit into this new developments in AI? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a lot of the terminology gets thrown around all over the place. A really good way to think about the hierarchy here is AI is a very general idea. It's the idea that whatever humans deem intelligence can be replicated by a computer. And this is a sort of pole that keeps moving. 10 years ago, we thought playing chess is intelligent. And so we were like, if a computer can play chess, whatever system enables that is an artificially intelligent system. Today, we're like, you know, you need to be able to have a coherent conversation. Tomorrow, we might be like, oh, yeah, you need to be able to run a whole business. And so that pole will keep moving for AI. Machine learning is one way to achieve this goal, right, of, of intelligence. And then deep learning, which really comprises a lot of this world of neural networks, is one subset of machine learning. All large language models are essentially neural networks. So the whole LLM space can be thought of as a subset of deep learning. There's a couple of generalizations and liberties I'm taking there, but, uh, but that's really the hierarchy that's, that's worth keeping in mind. Neural networks are not separate from LLMs. Deep learning is not separate from machine learning. Neural networks are essentially just a subset of machine learning. I've probably revealed my ignorance more than I like to, but that's, that's the nature of actually, I think, doing a good podcast is the willingness to ask questions and be curious and try to uh, hear from people who know more than you about something. Ben, so you guys are at Neva together. Do you undergo a sale of the, of the company to Snowflake? What, what, is, what is your relationship and what is the sort of path that you take together to tackling a new thing? And what is that new thing? Definitely. So uh, our relationship at Neva was, I always knew Tanmay in our interactions as an exceptionally talented engineer, a great member of the team, and certainly at the forefront of our large language model work uh, and what we were doing with AI. The nice thing when you're in policy and communications, you actually get a cross-section of entire companies because you're often doing interviews or you're bringing up points and your narratives and you're really getting to dig in with, with different members of the team. And Tanmay was one of those folks. After the acquisition, we actually went, I think, our separate ways for a little bit as we were either taking some time off, which was very nice, or kind of starting to uh, walk down different paths of exploring what might come next. And uh, probably two weeks after the acquisition was closed or finalized, uh, I got an email from Tanmay saying, you know, hey, um, you know, it, it's Tanmay. Given your, your political background and experience, I have some ideas on seeing about potentially doing something together that might supercharge the phone banking and volunteer experience and helping with persuasion and reaching voters. And I immediately responded, that sounds amazing. I think with having seen what AI was doing at, at Neva, I could immediately see the value there. And we quite quickly hopped on the phone and started talking through what Tanmay had already kind of sketched out with a concept. Um, and I think you, Nathaniel, you already, you pointed to this earlier, which is there is something unique about having two individuals with separate but 
equally complementary expertise in the kind of background and field of politics and also of technology. And that is a rarity. So to bring that together made this jump actually pretty easy and fast. I was able to kind of provide some of my own firsthand experience in phone banking, understanding what it's like cycle in and cycle out of reaching volunteers and what could be used or what campaign managers might go towards or what democratic infrastructure, et cetera. And Tanme was able to bring the tech side immediately, not just someone who's playing around with a chat GPT API, but someone who is building and fine tuning models and is at the forefront of it to, to be able to deliver. And it was real fast to having a demo and a product and then opening up, you know, folks that I fortunately have been in the trenches over the years with on the political side to, to say, hey, I'd love to show you something. Uh, and we were out of the gates with a demo real fast. That's exciting. One of the things I'm struggling with here is like you went from this mission to which seems very large to me to do search in a new way, which is something that could impact the whole Internet theoretically to a much more narrow entrepreneurial effort to tackling these very specific aspects of political communication with AI. Does that feel large enough to you guys? Why is that the exciting thing to go after at this nexus with the talents that you have? Tanmay, why don't you start? It seems like it, it came to you first. Absolutely. I'm happy to. So essentially, I think what's exciting and the common thread between what we were doing at Neva and, and what we're sort of pushing towards now is being able to bring people information that really matters to them. Under the hood, that's really what's happening in both cases. At Neva, it was more around sort of general searches that you want to make, uh, right? General information that you might have some reason to get to know. Here, our focus is really how do we get folks to be able to raise awareness about the choices that they're making, right? And, and I'll rephrase that as, as make more informed choices. And what we really saw is across the, the AI world, uh, a capability that large language models unlock is the ability to sift through a lot of noise to decipher signal, right? And you'll hear this from me time and time again. That's exactly what our, our exactly one answer product was, was centered around. And that's really exactly what's happening under the hood here when we're sort of enabling campaigns and, and folks to, to go disseminate information to, to the people that they want to reach out to. It's, look, we know you want to know this, or what is it that you want to know? Um, all right, let's talk about that, right? So it it basically transforms the paradigm from what I like to think of as a broadcast system to a conversational system. And no one's out there disseminating uh, messages any longer. You're essentially having a conversation about the things you care about. The reason I sort of got really excited about politics is actually it goes back to grad school for me. I spent sort of the latter half of my grad school time essentially researching the persuasive impacts of dialogue systems. And the big blocker that I noticed back then was that the dialogue system was just not fluent enough. But barring that, it was really capable of making an impact on the folks that were having conversations with it. And so the big unlock over the last six months has not been anything more than the fact that chatbots or, or dialogue systems are now a lot more fluent. They're a lot more human sounding. And so that really triggered this thought in me of, of starting to think about, okay, how does that impact this research that I did in grad school? And that's what ignited this conversation with Ben. That's what ignited sort of us going down this path. So there is, is sort of a longer backstory to this in terms of why 
we ended up down this route. Uh, one of the things that made some impact on my understanding of politics, and I've referred to this before on the podcast because it was a summer I spent canvassing for a for Colorado Perg, right? And you and when I did that, and a lot of people have had the experience of canvassing that listen to this or participate in politics, but you knocked on a door and you tried to engage a random human at their house with a, an issue. I think I remember talking about the lemon law on cars or something, right? The purpose of that was both to create an understanding and pass an information and as well as to raise money to support lobbying on that issue and things like that. But what I learned from that dialogue with people at their doorstep, one of the things I learned was there was a basic rap you could use, but the minute you started to engage your own intelligence and react to the person as an individual and communicate based on the, your growing knowledge of these type of conversations, the better you could do at creating rapport, the better you could do at creating an understanding and maybe persuading them to be supportive or move them in your direction. And, and I've talked to some people who are engaged in the deep canvassing world, and they know a lot about the kind of dialogue that can move someone who's very resistant on a tricky issue to a different place. How can AI, which seems so far from human intelligence and empathy, as you said, we're in the very beginning of this, how can the advantages that it have compensate for the disadvantages? And how does this fit into what you're trying to do? Long question, but I'm curious. I'm happy to start off because I, I think there's an important aspect of sometimes we look at the technology with a very narrow focus. And I look at this as a tool that augments and complements your ability to talk to and reach and connect with voters. If you've spent time on a campaign or you've canvassed or phoned back, but, but more than just volunteering, one of the exercises is kind of the personal story. Why are you here? What drew you to this campaign? And then when you get that emotional side and then you share that with others, it, it opens a lot of doors. And what we're working on is not to replace your volunteer experience and your individual connection. To me, what makes it stronger is that when I knock on a door, if I am not comfortable with the material or the, the position and I can't provide some sort of factual basis, my ability to emotionally connect is actually much less so than it would be otherwise. And this kind of tool to me provides those kind of facts that are dynamic or gives you the right talking points to grow on top of the emotional connection. This is not that all of a sudden a machine is is taking over. And, and Tan May will talk about, I think there's a lot of lessons in persuasion that you can go deeper on. But you know, one of the things that, I, that we all know is that campaigns give static scripts to phone banking experience. And once you're out of that four corners of the script can be really difficult. Uh, it can be difficult for the volunteer, difficult for the other person on the other end who doesn't feel heard uh, or you know their, their issues they raise are not being addressed. And this tool gives the volunteer what they need to be able to have information that is squarely in line with what the campaign stands for, what the positions are, and then even push back against things that aren't true. But, you know, Tommy on the persuasion side in the tech, I think probably can add a little bit as well. Tommy, could you start by, I haven't done a good job at asking like what 
is it actually that you have built and are building? And and I think if you start by kind of giving some clarity to to people listening about what have we built and what are we trying to do, and then tackle the more subtle question that I probably jumped the gun with. Yes, absolutely. So the simplest way to explain what we've built is a message hyper-personalization engine, uh, right? What we've essentially said is if you know some things about the person that you're about to talk to or, or can ask them what they care about, you should be able to then lean into the part of your political campaign or social campaign that best associates with them. So all we're really doing is cutting out the noise from the 600 page manifesto or, or platform that you have down to the five lines that the voter might care about. We believe very strongly in this in this world of sort of elevate, not automate, precisely because it allows us to supercharge the folks that are on the front lines talking to voters, or even if you're trying to recruit volunteers, the idea is really how do you reach out to them in a manner that appeals to them the most? So we don't add new information or, or craft things like that. We basically just say, you could say 100,000 things. Here's the one thing you should say to this person. Or here are the top five things you should say to this person. And if you think about it, you know, a lot of the, the pitch deck development that people do uh, when they're going out to raise funds or, or your landing page on your website is really exactly the same process, right? Uh, it's you figuring out out of all the millions of things you could say, in a given conversation, what's the best thing to say? That's really the core of our product. We have a lot of UI capabilities on top of that that sort of enable this in different ways, but that's that's the best way to think about it. But just to jump in, just because I want to paint a very clear picture. Let's say you're a volunteer on a campaign and you're going to do some phone banking from your computer. It's an auto-generated dialer. There's a script that the campaign has sent you. It could be about one particular issue. That's all you have. What ours does is actually either it stands on its own and, and has the auto dialer in it, or it integrates with an existing infrastructure. And immediately, the moment you start the conversation with a voter and you can actually record in real time, the voter starts talking about issues that matter to them. You can hit one button and on the right side, you're going to get three, five or six bullet points that are baked only in the campaign's infrastructure and policy, not outside universe, that gives you specific talking points to what the voter is saying that they care about. If you don't record it and you type in just one word like education or healthcare, those talking points are going to populate on the right side. That's just for the volunteer voter phone banking or knocking on door experience. Not only do we provide that in the platform, but you can hit one button that generates that into a text message and automatically sends to the voter's cell phone. We can also do AI-generated voicemails through robocalls that go directly to the voicemail in the candidate's voice. So we can do the voicemails. We can also generate emails out of this content. And then uh, lastly, I think most important for campaign management, we provide a lot of insight into what all of these phone banking calls mean. Uh, so we have a reporting function that tells sentiment. It gives word clouds of what the issue, what most important issues are coming up. Anyone who's running campaigns will tell you now, most of this is anecdotal. Talk to a shift manager. What's everyone saying? What's going on the phones? They don't actually have real data. And this is real-time data across thousands of calls, all distilled into what matters the most or what's on people's minds. And it's put together. It's a pretty potent tool. Tanmay, Ben said that you were able to put together a demo 
or a early product very quickly. What were you building it on top of to do that? Did you have access to the Neva solution? Were you using chat GPT for what's the tech stack and where, where are you going with that aspect of things? Yeah, so not at all. Neither of those. We didn't use any any lines of code or anything like that from Neva. And we also don't use um, OpenAI. Uh, you know, OpenAI has been very sort of strong about this. And we can talk more about where they're coming from, about not using this for, you know, campaigning or, or election message personalization in any way. Um, and this is where I really think open source technologies are so key. Our systems are essentially fine-tuned on top of open source models. And the idea there is really to be able to say, you know, AI is not just bad for elections and there are going to be bad actors and we don't want to ignore that risk. Uh, but there's so much potential for good action, right? There's so much potential to create value and engage voters more deeply through these technologies. Going back to sort of your original question, the tech stack for us is pretty simple. We have, you know, a Python backend. We use our open source models uh, that have been fine-tuned over time. So for context, you know, till about six months ago, there were really no APIs like ChatGPT to do AI. So those of us who've been around for, for a little bit longer have been fine-tuning models on the regular. When I was at TikTok, we fine-tuned tens of models a year, if not hundreds of models a year, and the same at, at Neva. And so really not a big leap to, to do this. It takes me usually about five to six hours to fine-tune a model, uh, maybe a day or two if it's, a, if it's a big data set. And so these are our proprietary AI models, uh, but they are on top of sort of open-source solutions that, that are pretty popular. You've sort of made the point that this is a a good use of AI. It's theoretically going to help communicate more effectively, more efficiently with a voter, the actual messages of your campaign, which is hard to argue with having an assistant in that regard. It seems quite reasonable. But clearly this kind of technique could be used, hard to imagine how not, by a demagogue, by a Trumpist to assist them in communicating, how will you limit the use or will you of this to progressive uh, values or whatever else is a goal of yours? Yeah. So I think what we really focus on is knowledge grounding. I think the problem with AI is not sort of who ends up using it as much as how it's used. And the reason I say that is everyone is going to have a stance what you want your engine when you're sort of doing hyper-personalized messaging to do is to not lie about what that stance is. And that's really in our control as builders of the systems. Now, obviously, you know, I can't take guarantees for alternative systems that exist out there. But really, the way I think about it is if you have a message that's intended for me, this system should be able to give you that truthful message, should be able to give me that truthful message. And what we believe under the hood very strongly is that this is going to make for more aware voters who are going to make better choices, you know, not only at the presidential level. Oftentimes it gets conflated, um, this idea that like all technology is for these big elections. But if you really think about it, for down-ballot elections, you know, uh, most people are not able to make the informed choices because they're having to deal with so much noise amongst the information they care about. So we're really betting on that American voter to say they're going to make the right choices and we're betting on you know global voters for that matter. That's really where we feel the, the biggest delta can be made through AI is now when you go and you see those 20 other elections below the top one, because of hyper-personalization, you have a clear idea. You can go to a chatbot and, and in the future say, okay, I hold these values. 
who should I vote for and give me the sources that that suggestion is grounded in. So I can go click on that source immediately, see what the person said, and I'm good to go. So we're never telling people what to do. We're simply giving them access to the information they believe is most relevant. I found that in, that answer quite interesting and incomplete. Ben, what, what would be your take on the answer to that? I bet you have probably heard with a similar ear some gaps in that kind of thinking about the conveying of information uh, as you know an accurate portrayal of what the campaign is doing. But there is an, an issue when the campaign is deceitful in its own regard. Yeah. So, well, let's unpack a few things. There's a little bit of fear and skepticism around what AI will, what AI's impact will have on elections. There was recent polling, even I think today, as of this recording through Axios, that talked about 53% of Americans slightly more weighted to Republicans than Democrats fear or feel that AI will have an impact on misinformation in elections. Now, I think that is a result of three things. The first being our experience with social media is what anchors us to seeing technology and its impact on elections. And we know that there was a lot of misinformation using social media in the last couple elections. Two, we're actually seeing the abuse of AI on elections, and it's grabbing some headlines. We've seen deep fakes from audio and videos that aren't actually attributed to uh, a candidate. We're seeing campaigns, policies wrongfully put forward. And then the third is that, frankly, the way the media has covered a lot of this is about the potential negative impacts, not necessarily the benefits. So we're already starting in a negative way. What I say to this, and I, I think is that that is going to happen no matter what. In the history of elections, we have always seen misinformation and it is being supercharged. But the use in my mind right now is for campaigns to take advantage of an AI tool that gives them a thousand more opportunities to get their platform and their actual policies out there. In my opinion, as much as folks will call for no AI to be allowed in elections, that is not happening by 2024. So your, your option is let the other side distort your views and, in fact, maybe even cause a lot of damage using it in the wrong way or do the right thing. Make sure that your policies on healthcare and the environment and immigration and whatever hot topic it is get out to as many voters in a personalized way as possible and use the tools at your disposal. And I think AI, and frankly, what we've built, gives you that opportunity to use it. And it is baked, again, for us specifically, we don't bring information that's outside of the universe of the campaign's platform that they're uploading. But I, I don't think you go into politics with an arm tied behind your back right now when the negative side is going to use it. And this is something that can really help you. The last thing I'll say to this is things that are nice to haves and need to haves often look like one or the other. And only in hindsight, do you realize how important they are? And I think AI and campaigns will turn out to be a must have, not a nice to have. And augmenting our ability uh, in campaigns and volunteers and the entire infrastructure 
to use a technology to reach more voters, to reach them at where they are and persuade and get them to understand where the campaign's coming from is a technology right now that we haven't seen before. It's very exciting. When you guys brought up deep fakes and the ability to mimic the sound of a candidate's voice or potentially generate a video that looks like someone, but it's machine generated. There are tools that let you generate the voice of a candidate saying something, right? As part of communicating. Is there a line that should be regulated in the long run about how to use the ability to generate an artificial voice or image or video or something beyond that? Is there a problem with that or we just do we just leave it unregulated and up to the ingenuity of both teams to deal with? In terms of, at least for us, we want to be very explicit about this. We never generate any AI capabilities that are not explicitly licensed by the person we're generating them for, right? So what that means for us is if we're ever going to generate a voice on some text, it's going to be authorized by the person whose voice that is our system and we add manual verification to that process. We're definitely being very, very sure that we're not generating any audio, text or images uh, on behalf of someone that we're not explicitly licensed to do. But it is worth noting that that is like an internal choice we've made, right? Um, And I think what's really key here is that there does need to be ramifications legally of, of of sort of acting outside of these bounds but the, the meta problem that exists right now is there's a lot of legislative activity and not that much legislative impact uh, because a lot of these decisions are very technical. Where do we draw this line? What's a tractable line to draw? But unfortunately, most of the folks around the table, and this is not just an America thing, this is a global challenge. A lot of the folks around the legislative table are just non-technical, right? Uh, you'll see very, very few technical people represented around the table in terms of this legislative activity, which means that the lines that are drawn are often drawn in the sand because you're basically saying, oh, you can't do this. And then an engineer behind a computer actually can. But more than that, the line that you've drawn doesn't actually impact the lines of code that the engineer is writing. I mean, it does seem like ramifications, as you put it, might make some sense, but you can easily see how some actor, regardless of whether there's a law or not, may say, if I can drop something that looks like a candidate had an affair two days before the election and move votes, I I don't give a crap if I get in trouble for it because I can change the course of human history by which direction this country is going. This is is an enormous challenge, the likes of which we are wholly unprepared for. I don't think there's any way around that. And anyone who tells you otherwise doesn't understand it or is full of it. Exactly what you just said is a very real threat. And yes, at the, you know, at the campaign level, at the C4 level, at the PAC level, I would imagine and should have regulation that addresses this. But to your point, it is going to be very difficult to stop one individual who makes something like this and it goes viral because we have the platforms that allows one person with one thing. We've already seen it, right? We've seen it in the music already. When you you know, make a song and the sound of Drake and that isn't Drake and it goes viral, that wasn't on a major platform's creation, but they put it on YouTube and it went nuts. So 
I don't have an answer for how we're going to tackle that, but that is an existential threat to our elections without a question. Talk a little bit about the building of this into a business, because it's one thing to have a very good idea about how to better communicate to voters and change the interface for doing that and make more succinct what language is being used and things like that using machine learning or, or AI. It's another thing to actually get that technology adopted. Even if we're worried about like how much change could happen, when you actually try to build a product and sell a product, you run into a lot of difficulty I'm, I'm well aware of in this space. Tell me about the steps you guys have taken so far to try to build a company around this and how's it going? So Nathaniel, you wear the scars from trying to convince traditional campaign infrastructure to adopting new technology. I think we are seeing similar challenges, though the conversations we're having up and down the entire chain have been incredibly positive, whether it's you know folks from the DNC to, frankly, even your old company's larger uh, holding company to down ballot races. When we showcase the product, when we talk about it, there is excitement and interest and wanting to use it. Getting folks to pay for it is always a challenge. And we're just now in the stage of figuring out who and what and how do you actually bring our product into kind of your regular tools that you make available to your volunteers and integrate it. On the good news, the feedback is incredibly positive. People want this type of thing, but they're yet to really fully commit to saying, we're ready to put big money behind it. In my opinion, the way you get at this is going to probably be both ground up, where the more campaign managers in different races who actually can adopt this individually and then come to rely on it and say, we need it. And that gets up through the chain, through the committees and others. And hopefully some bigger causes see it too and want to include it and use it. And then it kind of grows from there. Tanmay, what has surprised you the most about the challenges in now getting adoption for this technology, entering this market and, and finding success here? Yeah, I think what's been both interesting and challenging is, like Ben mentioned, that willingness to pay component. Folks very clearly see the value. The fascinating thing about this emerging technology is it's not just the tech world that's adopting it so quickly. You know, you look at the larger corporate world and also the political world, the rate of adoption has been much faster. We really didn't see this kind of adoption with things like crypto, for example, across the board. So there's a much greater willingness. What gets me very excited, because I've been waiting for this moment six plus years now, the value of AI is not new, but but the realization of value of AI is very new. What's now going to be key is is really building trust. We really need to be in a place where we can show folks that this is the trustworthy source of AI because there is so much uh, negative sentiment, some deserved, some maybe not so much, that sort of disseminated the market. Does it have to be marketed as AI? I mean, in a certain sense, like it is somewhat irrelevant what's behind the hood. And what's more important is like, what can it do? And how does it make your enterprise better? And you almost don't necessarily need buzzwords or accurate words about models to explain it. 100%. And, and a lot of the conversations we have are really focused uh, more on the value we can create for the end customer and, and for the folks that they're trying to serve more than kind of the underlying technologies. When you look at that demo, it's relatively obvious uh, that, that, that there's AI sitting underneath the hood. And also, you know, we want to counter this, this sort of sentiment of distrust 
that's surrounding this technology. And I think if the only products out there branding themselves as AI are, are malicious products, then you really sort of go down this road where AI itself gets associated with, uh, with malicious intent for every technology. Uh, we saw this in, in previous elections, right? Even data analytics can be made malicious. You, you really don't need something complex. I think there's a component of that that's like also about uh, making the industry a lot more uh, trustworthy. Well, I'm, I'm very interested to see how this plays out for you. And maybe the best way to do this is for you two to come back on the show after some progress and talk about how that went. Because I think that there's going to be a lot of people wanting to know, let me just ask you, what should I have asked you guys that I didn't? One thing that you could have asked us probably more deeply is how do we actually create the, the legislative restraints that might control this technology or, or disincentivize malicious usage? I think a big part of that is going to rest with the government, as does for you know everything from a car. Right. You can you can do really, really bad things with a car. And a lot of what prevents that is is centralized disincentivization. And I think that's going to be sort of key also to, to the AI space uh, is how do we create disincentives for for bad actors? Ben, what what else would you want to make sure that people knew what you guys are doing? Tanmay told me, I think that this is called common ground before we started recording. What do you want people to know about common ground? I thought the conversation was great. I want to be very clear what the product is and that it is available for campaigns to use. Maybe you could add some context from your own experience here. The feedback we've been given is this is far farther ahead than anything in the campaign space in this area. This isn't an idea. Like This is an actual thing that could be used right now and exactly kind of what it does. We got into that a bit, but I think it should come up a little bit higher than the existential kind of conversation about AI and tech, just so people understand what we've built. So why don't you take a quick swig at that? Articulate what is the bottom line that you want people to go away with? Common Ground is a platform that supercharges the phone banking and volunteer experience that enables campaigns uh, to reach and persuade voters on a level they've never seen before. It is both a standalone platform where phone banking can take place and the volunteer has real-time talking points that match whatever the voter they're speaking to is most interested in based on the campaign's platform. The ability to turn those talking points into a text automatically using AI that gets sent directly to their phone. The ability to do the same with email, to create a AI-generated voicemail in the uh, candidate's voice that can go directly to their voicemail via robocall. In addition, any important information that the volunteer provides, such as I'm interested in healthcare or the environment's my most important issue to me, that will get saved into whatever database you're already using automatically through our platform. And finally, there is a really important reporting mechanism that creates a word cloud for the most important information coming across on the call or all the calls, as well as sentiment. So campaign management can understand what the main messages that are resonating or not with their campaign. All of that can either be on its own or integrated into whatever platform the campaign's already using for phone banking. To me, it is, it's kind of a vision of what direction politics is likely to be going in. I'm really glad to have the chance to talk to you both about it. 
I appreciate you both. Anything else you want to say, either of you? No, I think this has been a really, really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for having us. I think we're really excited to create an image of AI and a visualization of the future that isn't entirely malicious and that actually creates better outcomes, both for elections and for the voters involved in them. And we truly believe that this is something that can push the needle just a little bit, maybe in, in that direction. No, I was just say I agree. And thank you for having us. It's really been an honor and a pleasure to talk. For me too. That was Ben and Tanme. Ben is at Ben Cobran on X. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.